Here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Hello there, this is your daddy on the radio, on the move, and in the groove. Oh, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. 1420 3XY. How are you? It's 9 after 6 with Lee Simon. It's 18 to 6. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. Here each evening, 7 through to 10 on our Big Sam show. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Keith. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's pilot was part of the more music radio formats that dominated the Australian airwaves in the 70s. He also worked behind the scenes in production roles in both radio and television and has been a powerful and influential figure in the Melbourne comedy scene. He will also forever be known as the first voice on commercial FM radio in Australia. He is Peter Grace. Hey, Peter Grace, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been listening to a lot of your other podcasts, and I've really enjoyed them. Well, thanks for that. As an integral part of some of this country's most influential radio stations in the 70s and 80s, where did the interest in music and radio start for Peter Grace? Uh, When I was about 15 in high school, I actually told my parents I wanted to leave school and become a disc jockey because I'd read in the paper about this... uh, 15-year-old kid in Melbourne who'd uh, done the same, and it turned out his dad was the guy who owned the radio school he went to, (laughs) and uh, the nearest one to us was 50 miles away, so uh, I had to put it off for a few years. Now, when you did first start out, was your primary interest in the music or the broadcasting? Well, uh, yeah, uh, totally, uh, mainly the music. Uh, I was interested in how broadcasting worked, but... uh, I keep telling people if I ever wrote a book, it would be called Hit With The Lucky Stick because I've been so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, one of the things that I regard myself as being really lucky for, I was was a music fan who got to make a living out of being a music fan. First gig at 3BA Ballarat in the early 70s, then on to 3UL in Warrigal. Tell us about your first couple of years in the industry. Did they live up to your expectations to what you thought a jock's life would be like? Um, yeah, I, I was sort of, I was, I was sort of driven. I was 19, just before my 20th birthday when I went into radio at Ballarat. Um, it was a 24-hour station and uh, I used, there was a radio in the uh, the desk, a car radio plugged into the desk. So I used to turn around and see who else was on here in the middle of the night. And I got a call from an overnight uh, telephone operator in uh, Horsham or somewhere who rang disc jockeys all night all around the country and um, 
I said, do you, do you know this bloke in, in Newcastle, Lee Simon, I hear a bit of him. And he said, yeah, you want to talk to him? And I went, yeah, sure. So that was when I first met Lee Simon, and he was the one who uh, who told me that the way to get to 3XY was to, because that was my original ambition, was to get to 3XY. But the uh, the route to get there was to start at 2NM Muskbrook, which was like the training ground. Then you went to 2NX in uh, Newcastle, and then you had you choose, had you pick between XY and SM when a job came up there. So it was Lee that uh, sort of helped me along the way early in the feast. Now, as you mentioned, Muzzlebrook, uh, now that wouldn't be on everybody's tourist run, but you did spend some time there at 2NM. Tell us a little bit about the people and the town of Muzzlebrook. It was cold. <laughs> it's the thing I remember most of all. And I was there through the winter. Um, yeah, it was a, a small town. It was, in those days, it was uh, mainly dairy farms all around the place. Uh, these days, it's mining. Um, yeah, so it was more of a sleepy country town in those days. A few less trucks built and up the highway. Um, but no, it was, it was it was good. And again, I was only there. For, uh, for a short time, I sort of regarded my years in the country. It only took me three years to get to uh, to 3XY, but I regarded my years in the country as like being away at the war. <laughs> I knew I was coming back. But, um, yeah, but they, they, all of the places I worked at were interesting places, and I met really good people everywhere I worked. So, um, and again, I hit with the lucky stick. <laughs> you mentioned 2NX Newcastle as a significant step, with the station boasting notable alumni such as Gary Supreme, Gary Mack, David Jones, Tim Webster, Gary Rogers. What was the NX format like when you were there? Uh, well, everything was, uh, even all the way back to 2NM in Musselbrook, everything was done like it was at 2SM and 3XY. In that you, uh, I mean, you didn't talk a lot on the air. At 2NM, you learned how to not say anything. In fact, you weren't allowed to say anything more than the time and the, you know, the, the basic details of the song you played so that you would eventually decide that if you were going to say something, one, it had to be worth saying, and two, you had to have the, uh, the right words to say it in the least number of words possible. More music, more music, 3XY. So how actually did you land that first Capital City gig at the all-conquering 3XY in Melbourne? Uh, well, again, I, I took that, that train, or I, I took that course through 2NM, 2NX. When I, when I got to 2NX was when Lee Simon moved on to uh, 2SM in Sydney. And then when somebody from 3XY moved on, um, I got the call in November 75 um, and told that the job was mine if I wanted it at 3XY. So that was my dream come true. Turned up on the first night. Uh, I turned up 20 minutes late and ran into three of the chief executives who, for, for some reason, for the only time they'd ever been there at that time in the morning, um, were there. But they were all pretty, uh, uh, pretty soaked. So uh, they looked at me rather stunned, and I just said, well, you wouldn't want this to happen to you on your first day of work, would you? And just kept on running. <laughs> yeah, nice start, Peter. Now, the station wasn't short on large ratings or big names at the time, with, as you mentioned, Lee was there, Greg Evans, Peter Harrison, Chris Maxwell and Joe Miller all smashing it. How easy was it to slot into a station that was at the top of its game? Um well, it just felt really good to be there, and it made you try harder yourself to do to raise yourself to the standard of everybody around you. Um, and, and again, most people were really good for me, and that they all they all uh, told me how, you know, taught me, helped me, and uh, even just by listening to them, I learned. So yeah, it was great. 
Now, 3XY's influence over its target demographic was at the time enormous. Was there ever an occasion, event or, or an incident when you thought to yourself, wow, this station has the power? Oh, lots of times. Lots of times when that happened. Whether it was, you know, uh, going out in a, in a van to hide a key for a promotion somewhere and looking behind you and seeing you had you know, 10, 15, 20 cars following you to where you're going to hide the key because they've been waiting for you outside the station since you drove out. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, things like that. Oh, one of my favourites was uh, uh, during the eclipse. There was an eclipse of the total eclipse of the sun, during which uh, we had a whole bunch of people digging for a deed to a block of land on the block of land during the eclipse, while uh, Joe Miller was in a plane over South Australia describing the eclipse before it got there, as the uh, as the darkness approached. Uh, we went into um, uh, 2001, the Space Oddity, Oddity Music, and, uh, and came out of it with Blinded by the Light by a man from Man's Earth Band. And, and the whole promotion was 3XY gives you the Earth, the Moon and the Stars. Now, Peter, every major music act that came into town made their way down to 250 Spencer Street. What were some of the more memorable interviews that you conducted and why were they memorable? Well, I wasn't doing a lot of them myself there at that stage. I was doing like local acts more. I was still in the early part of my career. It wasn't until I got to Sydney that I started doing a lot of big names. Although I was working at the time in 77, I was working on a TV show called Night Moves and I did the interviews for that every week. So they weren't so much three XY interviews for me. They were Night Moves interviews. But yeah, there were a lot of interesting folk that came through. There was one band came through and the, the, singer, the singer announced that the band had split up during their trip at a hotel in, a motel in Dubbo or somewhere like that. And uh, it was no use doing the interview because the band had split up and uh, they were going off to start a new band called The Eurythmics. Well, my lady really digs to tango Why she doesn't Now, you obviously enjoyed the XY format because the next move was to 2SM in Sydney. Same logo, same format, same rating success. Now, there were lots of things that were the same about the two stations. So what was the difference between the stations and those two marketplaces? Oh, good question. They were two quite distinct. They, they both, I mean, they were both under the same logo, similar, as you said, um, similar formats. The music was different, different kind of music, uh, in Sydney, like I, I don't think in the whole time I was in two years I was in Sydney, I don't think I ever played Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool, which is something you played all the time in Melbourne. Um, so yeah, there was music that didn't go down, wasn't you know, wasn't a hit in Sydney, and music that was a hit in Melbourne. Um, disco took off really big in Sydney. Um, I mean, it was big in both cities, but it was really big in Sydney. And QSM at the time decided that we were going to. You know, the decision was, do we go with the disco trend or we, do we go with the uh, post-punk new wave kind of music, mm. uh, which is what Barry Chapman decided to go for. He went for that rather than uh, smothering a place in disco. So even though we were still playing things like BGs from Saturday Night Fever, we were still playing more of the XTC and bands like that, the more experimental or new, new wave-ish kind of bands. So that, that music was quite different. And there was a, when I was in Sydney, that was just one of the best times in my life because there was this 
music explosion where you know, most of the big bands of the 80s were in Sydney at that stage. And some had just arrived, Cold Chisel, the Angels had just moved in from Adelaide. Dragon and My Sex arrived from New Zealand around that time. Uh, Australian Crawl, Midnight Oil, JJ Seppin, the Falcons, they were all sort of, they weren't Sydney Act, but, uh, but yeah, all these bands were emerging. Flowers was another one. Um, they were all emerging around about this in this two year span and sort of really shaping music for the rest of the 80s in a lot of ways. Mental as anything was another one. Again, you were part of a pretty strong lineup with Ian McCrea, legend in Breakfast, Ronnie Sparks, Graham Rogers, Trevor Smith, and of course Gordon O'Byrne, all great broadcasters. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and McCrea uh, was great. He had an offsider who I really loved called the Hon Nick Jones. Um, and the Hon Nick Jones, he was like a maths professor or something like that. He had, uh, he had a, uh, a couple of taxi trucks which were registered to his dogs, who were also the, the registered uh, people in his uh, political party, which he called the Australian Colonialist Party. He, he wanted to bring the Queen back. He was quite a character, and he had this uh, had a, an outfit that was a paper mache top hat, uh, a, a tuxedo jacket with tails. Uh, he wore a lace garret badge and a sash. And jeans, and um, and he just pulled all these stunts. Like he was the one that, when we put the jumbo under the bridge, he was on the on the barge with the jumbo, with the elephant. Um, he did a couple of songs. He did one song about uh, when when Mull of Kintyre came out. He did one about the Irish tyre dealer who saved money by putting the tread on the inside, called Mulligan's Tyres. And another one, another one called Send in the Clones. They'll all be called Jones. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was uh, great, a great character, yeah, just, and again, just really good people. They were all really good people to work, work, work with. So, Peter, what shift did you enjoy most, and what do you think best suited the Peter Gray style of broadcasting? Well, again, as the music fan, uh, nights was best time for me because, one, I mean, a large percentage of the audience at night was kids doing their homework, so you're keeping them company. But I was sort of uh, like a feel, trying to appeal to a slightly older market, and if you talk to them like they're older, yeah, they'll they'll feel better about it too. So I was I was you know, most I really liked uh, early nights and late nights. Um early nights allowed me to get out and see bands later in the night. I did both rollers at two SM. But again, you know, just being being the bridge between the people and the music, whether it's uh, you know, playing them a new song that you've heard that you really like or doing the interview with the artist. Um, that was, again, the most fun and the biggest thrill of it all for me. Now, with the strict formats of both 3XY and 2SM, what sort of autonomy were you given in choosing new music and introducing new albums? Well, well for, for a long time, for uh, the two years in Sydney, and then for mainly for, for most of the 80s, wherever I worked, I had uh, a sort of deal where I was allowed to choose two tracks an hour myself. Every night I was featuring a new album, which meant two tracks an hour from that album, or uh, you know, giving a new album away and that sort of thing. So uh, I had this unique sort of thing where I could I, I could pick two tracks an hour myself, um, and they they weren't tracks that you know, I liked. They were tracks I thought people would like. I thought the listener would like. Again, you don't you don't sacrifice you know the privilege you have by <laughs> indulging your own personal taste. 
Um, so, yeah, so to me, that was, and again, that went right through the 80s for me, so I was very lucky in that sense. And I was music director at a couple of stations two at different times, so I couldn't tell myself not to do it. <laughs> now, 2SM was known for its great live concerts, but none bigger than the Concert of the Decade in 1979, featuring the absolute who's who of Australian music at the time and a number of high-profile reunions. Now, Peter, what do you remember about the preparations for that extravaganza and the concert itself? I think Barry Chapman's idea originally, and then he got together with all the promoters and all the people that can make it happen, and he made it happen. It was uh, you know, weeks and weeks of doing promos. Um, there was a lot of uh, organising in who was going on when, and there are little things we had to take care of too, like we were all big fans of the dingoes, and the dingoes had broken up by then. So at that stage, you know, what we did there was we got uh, Broderick Smith to open the show doing Rare Earths, I Just Want to Celebrate. Um, which was a nice opener, and um, yeah, and, and some I mean, Stevie Wright's performance there was you know, Oz Rock history. Um, it was a, a great performance, and Evie was a giant hit at that time too. So, yeah, I think he was probably. I think you'd have to say he was the hottest act on the day. Now we know the Catholic Church had a strong ownership interest in the station at the time. Now legend has it that Ted Murray had to sign a document guaranteeing that the song Diner wouldn't be featured in his set on the day. True story, Peter? That could very well be a true story because, again, the Catholic Church were the owners of the station and, um, yes, they did well their influence. I remember we got a letter um, once regarding two new songs we were playing. One was K-Sand by Cole Chisel. We referred directly to the uh, line, their legs were often open but their minds were always closed. And the other one was uh, Billy Joel saying, the good day young. Um, we, refer you, we refer you to the lines, what is it, uh, uh, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints. Uh, <laughs> please explain why you're playing it. So both songs were actually taken off the air for some time. k Sand made it back on the, air, on the air by the end of the year. But yeah, both those songs were banned because of the Catholic Church's ownership. Now, as powerful as SM was through the 70s, there was a mass exodus of on-air talent at the end of the decade. Was that purely because of the inevitable arrival of FM radio, or was there something more to it? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think just the realisation of the arrival of FM had a lot to do with it. Uh, at first, the, the thinking was, you know, among a few of my contemporaries, was we'll wait to see. We'd heard about all these people who were sticking their hands up to go to FM, and didn't trust a lot of them, maybe the, the showboaters or the really ambitious guys first. So we, yeah, there was a school's thought that maybe we'll wait a year or so until the Cowboys wreck it and we'll come in and you know, try and come in on the, on the back of that and see what we could do. But uh, as it turns out, around about, um, I think, September of 79, uh, Lee Simon rang from Melbourne and said that um, he was going to be the, the program director of the new one in Melbourne. So would I like to get on board? And yes, I did. And from then I was committed. And I uh, finished up in April at 2SM in 1980 and came down to uh, Melbourne because it was supposed to be starting in uh, June. And um, it was put off till July 11th. But uh, yeah, but that was great fun just building a radio station, you know, holding bits of plank while, while blokes hit them with hit hammers and that sort of stuff. Um, and unpacking records and, you know, just setting up something that was going to be brand new. And, of course, you know, the thing there was rule one, there are no rules. So um, it just felt like we were just on the brink of this really big thing.
Our very special guest today on Pilots of the Airways is, of course, Peter Grace. And Peter, Holger Brockman had his Neil Armstrong moment in January of 1975, uttering those very first words on 2 J. Now, yours came on July 11, 1980, on Melbourne's Eon FM. So who chose that first song, the opening lines, and the jock who was to deliver them? Uh, Trevor Smith chose the song, I think, and I think he and Lee came up with the opening line. And the reason it fell to me was because uh, when I first went there, I was going to be doing drive, um, but it was decided that Lee should be doing drive, and I totally agreed with that because he was their biggest you know, property because he was going to be program director and not on the air, and then they said, no, he should be on the air because he's got the name. Going, yeah, that's fine, I'll do early nights. And then Trevor Smith said, oh, I'd like to do early nights now. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, the late nights fell to me. Consolation, of course, being you're going to be the first one on the air. Um, and so, yeah, that's how that happened. Now, you had come from, I assume, state-of-the-art studios in Sydney to a makeshift affair with Hessian covering the walls in Bank Street, South Melbourne. The difference, of course, was a killer stereo sound. Did you ever have any doubts that FM radio would succeed? Uh, never. Just didn't know how long it was going to take. It was. The difference, again, um, as you say, state of the art in, in Sydney. I was sitting there looking at the Sydney Harbour Bridge every day and had this fantastic studio where you looked out at the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, so there was no doubting where you were. Um, and at Eod, it was a back room, as you said, with Ashen on the wall and a window looking out onto a lane with another building on it. So, yeah, it was a, a bit more uh, insular, <laughs> I'd say. So I think it's fair to say, however, that Eon tried to be a little bit too cute with its format early on and had to make a few adjustments before it really made a big impression. Yeah, yeah, rule one, you know, I know rule sort of fell out after about a year or so when we discovered that we weren't really going as fast as we'd like to. So yeah, so again, it was, formats were brought in. They weren't, they weren't highly restrictive, but they, you know, they were needed. Now, Peter, as well as your very successful on-air roles, you have also been part of some very significant projects, one notable one being, of course, the very successful Martin and Malloy radio program. Now, how good were those two guys together? Oh, absolutely brilliant. Tony Martin is the closest I've been to working with a genius. Uh, still regard him as you know, the smartest or the best person I ever worked with. Uh, and Mick was more fun. Mick was more relaxed, and like where Mick took up the slack where Tony was concentrating on something. Mick could do the hey look over here kind of level. Um, Tony Tony was the like the executive producer of the show and the guiding light and the driving force, if you like. And Mick, although although he was you know, along for the ride, as he put, you know, he, he gave the impression he was along for the ride. He did work pretty hard himself too. The two of them would turn up at eleven o'clock in the morning. Um, they'd already prepared a sketch or something they'd already done at home before they arrived. Uh, they had a little office beside the, outside in a shed outside the uh, the building on, on the balcony uh, that was craned up um, because they didn't want to be too close to the people inside the building, the executive level. And um, yeah, and they just worked really hard every day for four years. They started off, they thought they'd do it for a year, and they worked at the pace at which they thought they could work for a year. And they ended up doing that for four years. So they ended up sort of just falling over the line at the end. But, you know, again, every day was just, to me, the best quality radio. And again, I, I, prior to that, I thought the greatest job in the world was one where you could listen to loud music every day. And then I found out it was even better is one where you laugh your head off every day. 
Now, that comedy marriage came to an abrupt end, unfortunately. Did you feel like you were caught in the middle of a messy divorce at the time? Uh, well, they didn't divorce at that stage. They didn't sort of split up until a few years after that because, um, you know, straight out of that, uh, Nick made the movie uh, Cracker Jack, which had Tony in it, and Tony made his movie Bad Eggs, which starred Nick. So they, they were you know, still together for quite some time after that. It wasn't until uh, the Boytown movie came along that they sort of had their big, their big bust-up between the two of them. Now, you've been involved in stand-up comedy yourself, which may be a part of your CV that not many people know too much about. Can you fill us in a bit? Uh, that, was, that started in 1991. I did my first gig the night of the, uh, the first day of the first Gulf War, timing, secret of comedy. And um, I, uh, I, I got to that point because I'd, um, I'd pretty much decided I wasn't going to be a disc jockey anymore because, again, as I said, I was a music fan. I was the guy who did the interviews, went to see, see the bands, listened to the new music, picked, you know, picked the hits. I was the only jockey who went to the music meetings, um, and, and that was my forte. But when corporate radio arrived, like when Osterio took over, uh, everything became more corporatized. Uh, they decided not to take any as many risks. Everything went down to research. So the one thing they didn't need anymore was the bloke who could tell them what, what new songs to play. Because what they decided was that instead of the official story was that instead of leading the market, we're going to reflect the market. So basically, that meant we're going to cut our playlist by about uh, two thirds and just play a very small number of songs. Well, to me, it was a small number of songs that researched over and over again, and uh, they didn't need to play anything new. The only new thing they went from playing uh, adding five new records a week to one a month. And then it had to be a hit. So I, I saw that my time was pretty much up as a disc jockey. And I thought, well, the next thing, radio is going to need to embellish this boring playlist will be comedy. Um, and there were a few people doing comedy on the radio at the time. I worked with a few of them. And um, so I decided I'd go off into the world of comedy and see if I could find a group to bring back to uh, bring back to radio and do it myself. So I ended up, uh, I started running a room at the Esplanade Hotel with another guy who'd already had a room going there before. Um, started doing stand-up, started writing, wrote for uh, uh, wrote for a breakfast, at the Gold FM breakfast show for six months. And it went, well, very luckily went to number one in that time. So that got me a gig writing at Channel 7 in the uh, Tonight Live writers were in, um, and then I wrote for a few TV shows after that. And uh, yeah, so again, it was uh, writing was just as much fun as the uh, the doing. And um, and again, comedy is, uh, to me was always something I always wanted to have a go at. Um, and the jump from disc jockey to comedian, stand up comedian, isn't that great? Can't sing, can't dance, like me. Also, Peter, you've been very active giving back to the radio industry through your association with the Indigenous Melbourne radio station 3KND. What was your involvement there? Um, well, I grew up in a country town with you know, Aboriginal friends at school, and um, the, my heroes in, in my hometown were three Aboriginal brothers who were in a band that uh, when I was about 12, they used to play Shadows songs at the local dance, and my brother and I would go down and stand outside and listen to them. Um, 
and uh, then when about 2000 I bought a video camera another thing I dabbled in for a while was making videos so I bought a video camera and then a mate of mine who was in the Aboriginal band said uh, why don't you why don't you come along and video some of our gigs and that was Paul Hester who was playing in a band called uh, Blackfire for a while and then he ended up playing in um, bands that were backing a number of different Aboriginal artists including Kutcher Edwards so he said come along and, and make some videos so I went along to make some videos and then after I'd been doing that for a couple of years, um, Grant Hansen said, look, we're going to start a radio station. Would you like to come along and help us? I said, oh, yeah, I'd love, love to help you set it up and do all that sort of stuff. And, they, and he said, we need somebody to train the people to be on the air. And I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So it was only going to be for a short time. But I ended up staying there for 11 years. And uh, it was one of the most educational periods of my life too because, you know, I'd always prided myself on you know not giving up on learning stuff and uh, I'm saying when I went to uh, went to 3KND I learned so much about contemporary Aboriginal culture and traditional Aboriginal culture and um, it was you know, it was really good for me again I, <laughs> I have to be a little bit selfish about it saying I probably got more out of it than they did you know Okay, a couple of quick ones here, Peter. Now, every decent radio station worth its salt in the 70s had some sort of hotted-up vehicle roaming the streets. What can you tell us about the Freedom Machine? Oh, Jesus, the Freedom Machine, the one in Sydney, I remember it. Um, it had tiny steering wheels and really fat tyres. And I was going around the corner of the Sydney Town Hall on Boxing Day as all the theatre crowds were coming out. And one of those big fat tyres hit the uh, hit the really low gutter, but uh, the wheel turned and uh, it mounted the gutter and wedged itself against a, a pole. Um, and so, yeah, I was uh, I wasn't a big fan of the freedom machine. Now you experienced October in two capital cities. Who celebrated better, Three XY and the people of Melbourne, or Two SM and the good folk of Sydney? Uh, well. Um, well, 3XY was the uh, was simpler in a lot of ways, but uh, 2SM was uh, again going back to uh, being owned by the Catholic Church. Let me tell you a little story. When you first arrived at 2SM, you were shown the Pope cupboard. And it was legendary amongst people who, uh, who you know, were on their way there and had worked there. And uh, when you arrived, the guy took you around and said, "This is the Pope cupboard," and he opened it up, and inside there was a copy of. Uh, they had his requiem on an album and a cart which had the announcement that the Pope had died on it. And um, he said, now if this happens, we go for three days, we stop everything and for three days we just play the cart and requiem and, uh, and you know, just pray to God that you'd never have to do it. And so, anyway, that's, that was one thing that happened. Then the first day of October comes along, we were running this promo, it's about a 20-minute promo, that said, uh, yeah, it was the preview of everything that was coming up. The promo itself was a, a work of art. And about halfway through it, somebody walked in white face and said the Pope died. <laughs> so we had to go off the air like 20 minutes into October. And uh, and luckily we only did it for, I think, 24 hours because that, that, that uh, <laughs> three weeks later, another Pope died. <laughs> Didn't seem to have a great run, did it? Oh, yeah, yeah, on that one, though, I think we only had 24 days on the second one because he only lasted 10 days or whatever it was. 
Finally, Peter, you started your career in a studio with uh, three turntables, four cart machines, and probably a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Today, it's a couple of touchscreen computers and a microphone. Do you think the fun's been taken out of music broadcasting? Um, uh, in a lot of ways, it's what you fantasised about having when you did have turntables and all that sort of stuff. Um, but in other ways, yeah, it, it probably I mean it makes the work easier. Um, no, I, I don't think it, it's, it detracts from it at all. Because I hadn't, uh, again, I I hadn't done anything for uh, about nine years. I'd been off commercial radio and I was at uh, KND. And Lisa Ivan rang up and said, um, you want to come and do this thing? We've got called on Nights. So I did it for like four months or so. Um, and they were just moving into their brand new studio and they had touch screen everything. Uh, um, yeah, it was quite... Uh, quite an you know, baptism of fire for me uh, to suddenly have five screens because in the country, in the, the, the community station, we had one one screen <laughs> and we played CDs a lot. And um, yeah, so to come into, uh, into the Triple M when the brand new studios were there that had the desk that was like a stand-up desk, you hit a button and the desk rose to stand-up height or drop back to uh, sitting in a chair height. Which was interesting because my first radio station ever was a stand-up desk at Three in Ballarat, so that brought back memories. But um, yeah, no, just rambling now. Sorry. <laughs> Special guest on this edition of Pilots of the Airwaves is Peter Grayson. Peter, time now for a dozen or so quick-fire questions. We sort of throw at all our guests. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was on air at Eon, and uh, Billy Pennell, one of the greatest humans I ever worked with, um, came down the passageway with a teleprinter, uh, a paper, a piece of paper from the teleprinter, and all it said at that stage was John Lennon had been shot and been taken to hospital. But it was official, it had been announced. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was the day. What's the last concert ticket you paid for? It would have been, actually, it would have been during my time at 3KMD. I remember I paid for a few shows there. I went to see the Pigram Brothers at one stage, seven-piece band from Bloom, but all brothers, fantastic act. Yeah, so I, I did pay to see them. Is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? The band would have liked to have seen Traffic too. Peter, is there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Uh, for me, it was a, a combination of two words, Bridge Street. And, the, and the, being together was always a bit of a problem for me. And it seemed that the first four radio stations I worked at, every business that advertised that, it, that you had to do an ad for was on Bridge Street. <laughs> so uh, I'd just do these power reads where you come up and be going really well until you got to Bridge Street. Peter, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Uh, yeah, a few actually, <laughs> quite a few. Um, uh, uh, early in my, when I first started in radio, I, uh, prior to that I'd been hanging out with hippies. We all considered ourselves fairly, fairly clever. And uh, we used to call Kentucky Fried, Kentucky Tried. And uh, I was on the air at uh, Ballarat one night and uh, I had a live read for Kentucky Fried. So as it's coming up, I'm going, Kentucky Fried, Kentucky Fried, get it right, Kentucky Fried. Open the microphone. How would you like to win a big bucket bucket of Kentucky Fried? I got that bit right. 
<laughs> I really thought I'd be going to the hoops after that one. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Uh, both. Both. And, and Skyhooks probably a little little more because of the fact that they had the, uh, yeah, they mentioned Australian place names and um, wrote about contemporary Australia. Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Uh, probably Beatles, although I, it's funny thing with the Stones is after, when I was about 18, I discovered that I was a Stones fan without knowing that because they brought out all, you know, albums just as frequently as the Beatles and I realised that on every album had a couple of songs I liked. And then after after um, Sticky Fingers came out, yeah, I was a real fan. So, um, yeah, I still think the Beatles did more. The most treasured piece of memorabilia that you have from those early radio days? Uh, probably my, my Bruce Springsteen autograph, because he was always God to me. And uh, I, he, I got him to uh, autograph a part of his uh, concert program and he used a pen that has since faded out, and I still have it up on the wall, but I know it's there. <laughs> mm, hey, nice one. Biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Ooh, uh, like the biggest one close was probably uh, I was on air when the uh, the Russell Street bombing happened in Melbourne around, was it about 86 or so? Peter, the moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Been a few times, uh, yeah, yeah. Like the thing is, I, I interviewed so many people that, that all, you know, and I was a fan the whole time. But uh, you know, the ones that I only ever asked a few people for autographs—that was Bruce, Tom Waits, and uh, I think B.B. King. But um, yeah, but they were all every, every one of them you know, was pretty much a, a mind blower for me. Do you have any best words of advice from a program manager? Uh, keep it tight. Keep it bright. <laughs> Finally, Peter, two albums that you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage hippie years. Oh, oh. Um, well, the band, mm-hmm. um, that album, and um, ooh, difficult to say again because I've got so many favourites. But uh, hey, Sticky Fingers, maybe. I was already out of my teens. Almost out of my dreams by the time it came out, but it was big. Well, Peter, all I can say is it's been a fascinating 40 minutes reminiscing about some of those great times in the 70s, but also learning that Peter Grace has a few extra strings to his bow as well. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to more with, uh, and hearing more from my, my contemporaries and old friends. Peter Grace on Pilots of the Airwaves. <laughs>